Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Father, we study your word in Jesus' name and believe right now the anointing upon it will manifest in each of our lives. We'll be changed by it from glory to glory. I thank you for utterance in the Holy Ghost, the unction to function, and making my tongue as the pen of a ready writer to proclaim truth with power and demonstration that will transform lives. We give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by just a quick review. Unbelief is what kept the Israelites out of the promised land under the leadership of Moses. But by faith, Joshua led the next generation, into the promised land. Now, the promised land is a wonderful place to be in where God says, I will be your God, I'll be an enemy to your enemy, an adversary to your adversary, and I'll see to it that you're blessed in every imaginable way. What a place to be in, right? It's not heaven, but it's like heaven on earth. And that's a wonderful thing. Well, how important is this then to know how Joshua got them into the promised land and how God deprogrammed them and reprogrammed them so that they could eliminate unbelief from their lives and rise up in faith. It's important that we understand how God did that. And if you think about it, if you were 20 years old and up when that was announced, when the judgment was announced upon the people, you died in the wilderness. 40 years, that was it. And you died in the wilderness. Who wants that? If you were 19 and under, God took you aside under the leadership of Joshua and raised up another breed of faith people, believers, that would usher them into the promised land. But how did he do that? And that's what this study is about. Number one, we said, we talked about this already, our enemy is defeated. We need to recognize the fact that the enemy has been defeated. As a matter of fact, if you got your, you got your Bible out there? I want you to see this. I didn't bring this out, and I'll, we'll continue here in just a moment. But in Joshua chapter 2, when we say the enemy is defeated, it is so imperative that we understand that. And here's why. If you recall, when the 10 spies or 12 spies went out to spy out the land, what happened? 10 came back with an evil report of unbelief, and 2 came back with a report of faith. Okay, a good report. Because they believe God. Well, what we don't see at that particular time when that's stated is that when these 12 went into the place of the promised land to spy out the land, the inhabitants of the land that they were so afraid of already conceded the land. They saw themselves defeated. They were ready to relinquish the land and give it to the Israelites. But guess what happened? The Israelites never showed up. And why didn't they show up? They were afraid. They said, we're grasshoppers. We can't possibly do it. Look in Joshua chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, because the second time around when we went into the promised land, this is what Rahab the harlot told them. And you can say it this way. She told them, what took you so long to get here? Forty years? Let's read it. Verse 8, chapter 2, Joshua. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, 
And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. Did you hear that? I know the Lord has given you the land. And that your terror is fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of uh, Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard the things, these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Isn't that hysterical almost? They're afraid of the giants, but the giants are afraid of them. Because why? They're viewing it from the perspective that God is bigger and greater than they are. But the Israelites, we can't do it. We're like grasshoppers. It's just too big of a task. We're not going to be able to get in. And so stop listening to Joshua and Caleb. Those faith preachers, they're probably word of faith preachers and they're fanatics and all that. Don't listen to them. Listen to us. They're too big for us. They conceded the land. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness when the land was already theirs. Needlessly did they flounder in the wilderness. They could have entered in. But it took 40 years because of their unbelief. Number two, we said that we've got a covenant with God. So number one, it's important to recognize the enemy's been defeated. Number two, we have a covenant with God. And nothing is more important than this. The fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. And when he makes an oath or a promise, he must keep it. He has to make it good. He cannot lie. We are the heirs of promise, and he made promises to us, and he will not in any way renege on any promise that he's made. Number three, remember where we were, where they're at, where, where they were, where they're at, and how they got there. We can summarize it just by saying, focus on what's going on and how you got to where you're at. Okay, so let's kind of break that down. Where were they? In Egyptian bondage and slavery. That's where they were. Where are they? At the edge of the promised land. How did they get there? By any effort of their own? No. Let's read the verses in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. This is where you extract these truths from the, uh, these verses. Verses 10 and 11. And the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover... There it is right there. The Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land. And on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. Well, what's the Passover? The Passover reminds them of where they were. They were in the promise. I mean, they were in the uh, Egypt in slavery. Enslaved by the Egyptians. And basically just tortured. That's where they were. Well, how did they get out to get to where they're at? Not by any effort on their own. Matter of fact, that would have been an impossibility. So in your notes, the Passover is first. Reminded them of their deliverance from Egyptian bondage and slavery. Number two, or B rather, the exodus. The exodus is your next word. Could not have taken place apart from divine intervention could not have taken place without divine intervention. 
So it took a series of miracles that shook Egypt to its foundation. And that's how the people were delivered from Pharaoh's bondage and headed toward the promised land. So it's important for them to remember where they were, where they're at now, and how they got there. Why? Because they're there, they're there by, on no effort of their own. They had nothing to do with their deliverance. There's not a thing they could have done to get to where they're at right before the promised land. God was the one who did it all for them. All they had to do was obey him. Well, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, I believe you should know the verse. We don't have to look it up. Who hath delivered us from the powers of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Who did that for us? So Egypt is a type of the world. And thank God we've been delivered not from Egypt, but we've been delivered from the power of sin, Satan. And sickness and disease and all that really is involved in the kingdom of darkness. We've been delivered from that. But how were we delivered from that? Well, Jesus did it. The Exodus led by Jesus is a more wonderful event. Jesus delivers all people not just Jews. Your words are all people, not just Jews. He delivers not from Pharaoh, but from Satan, sin, and death. So if we can compare the two, they came out of Egypt, slavery. They were entering into a promised land that they never made under Moses. And they were going to go to a land, praise God, where they could have had a milk and honey to the full. But unbelief kept them out. So God used the word to deprogram and reprogram the people under Joshua so that they would rise up in faith and get into the promised land. Jesus brought us out of the realms of darkness. How in the world can we do that for ourselves? You and I were planted in the kingdom of darkness. The devil lorded it over our, all of our lives. He's the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. And every single one of us was bound by sin and death with no hope of escape whatsoever. It didn't matter how religious you were. It didn't matter how wealthy you were. It didn't matter your gender. It didn't matter your social status. There is no possible way that you or I could be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and eternal separation from God. But God so loved the world, praise God, that he sent a Savior, not Moses, but praise God, Jesus, who's greater than Moses, came to this earth for the sole purpose of delivering us from the realms of darkness. And I'll tell you what, he came and plucked us up out of the realm of darkness, the miry clay, to transplant us into the kingdom of the living God. You talk about an exodus, you talk about a deliverance, there is no greater deliverance than that. And it's not just for Jewish people, it's for anyone and whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? That's what he did. Well, we got to remember that. Where were you? Where was I? Bound by sin and death. Where were we headed? Not to a promised land, but a land you don't want to be in for eternity. Lake of fire. Who brought us out? Jesus did. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Jesus brought us out. He delivered us. He made the uh, sacrifice. He paid the price for our deliverance. Now in the book of Exodus chapter 12 verse 7. You don't have to look it up. I want to get through this. They had to take the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Applied to the side post and upper post of the house. If they were to be delivered 
from the death of the firstborn. And if they applied it, then they were protected. If they didn't apply it, then they were not protected. So the shed blood was not sufficient. The blood that was shed had to be applied in order to be effective and to protect them from death of the firstborn. Well, the blood had to be applied as your word to the two side posts and upper posts, door posts of every house. The blood of Christ must be applied not to the side posts of the house, but to the heart of an individual. Oh, aren't you glad you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb? He took you and washed you from your sins in his own blood and made you a king and a priest before the Father God. That's what he did for us. And so the application of the blood is necessary. That's why this, you want to call it a doctrine of universalism, is not true. In universalism, they say, since he died for all, then all are saved. No, no, no. Not everybody applied the blood. You've got to apply the blood to be saved. Yes, he died for all. Everybody can be saved. But if you did not apply the blood to your heart and to your life, you are not saved and will not be saved. And they'll find that out someday. So the blood of Christ must be applied to the heart is your next word. And then first, we are washed from our sins in his own blood. Revelation 1, you could read 5 and 6 and made us kings and priests before our God. But then we walk is your next word in the light. And the blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that's found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. You could say it like this. There is a waterfalls of the blood of Jesus Christ that's just flowing from on high. And when you and I miss the mark, thank God that blood will cleanse us from all that is unrighteous. If we walk in the light, it'll be a continual flow of the divine blood of Jesus Christ that will keep us pure and cleansed before the throne of God so that we have a right to be before the Father's presence. Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus? That blood speaks volumes more than that of Abel's. Now in your notes then, we walk in the light, the blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness, but in Hebrews chapter 10, it also does something else. In these verses, it says where there's where that offering has been made, there is no more offering made for sin. So having therefore, brethren, boldness to come to the throne. How? By, the, by this new and living way, by the blood of Jesus Christ that he has consecrated to the veil that is to save his flesh. And having a high priest at the right hand of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and bodies washed in the pure water of the word. What is this saying to us? The blood of Jesus Christ gives us access to the throne of grace. The throne of God, we can access it by faith, knowing that because of the blood of Jesus. And why is that important to know? Because look, it's either your blood or his blood. It's either your righteousness or his righteousness. And you know what? Ours is as filthy rags. But his, praise God, thank God for his righteousness, because we become the righteousness of God in Christ. And because of that, we can approach the throne of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we can ask the Father whatever it is. We need deliverance, we can get it there. We need healing, we can get it there. We need strength, we can get it there. We need help, we need wholeness, whatever we need. We get it right there at the throne of God, and we get it, because of him, not because of us. It's called the throne of grace, boldly to the throne of grace. We have representation there at the, high, at the right hand of the majesty on high. His name is Jesus. And when we ask for mercy, there's two things. Come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain, number one, mercy. Number two, grace to help in time of need. Mercy means I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm getting what he deserves. 
He's a whole lot better than I am, wouldn't you say? Grace says, I'm getting what I don't deserve. I don't deserve this operational power, but I'm thanking you for it. So we get those two things. Mercy for when I miss the mark. Grace to empower me to not miss the mark the next time. So those two things, we're at the throne of grace and we access them by the blood of Jesus Christ and whatever it is that we need, whatever else we need. So by the blood, the blood provides remission, number one, remission of sin. Not just forgiveness, but remission, which means it removes any consequence that we should have as a result of the sin that we've committed. Aren't you glad for that? You're not just cleansed from the sin, but no matter what it was that you should be, let's say, liable for, it's removed as well. So never let it run its full course. Then, that, then it's a different story. Okay, entrance into the holiest place is your next word. Thank God for entrance into the holiest place of all. And then num number three, guarantee that every promise of God will be made good. It's a guarantee. It's our surety. Jesus is our surety at the right hand of the majesty on high. And his blood is ever speaking at the right hand of God, declaring that when we come before the throne, we have a right to be there. We have a right to access the grace of God. And we have a right to experience the promises of God in our lives. So it's all because of Jesus. and all, It's all because of his shed blood. So when we go there to ask for healing, we have a right to be there and we have a right to ask for it. He said, this woman bowed over for all these years, 18 years. She's the daughter of Abraham. Should she not be healed? Yes, she should be healed because she's a covenant partner with God. How much more should we be healed because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God? All right. If the blood of animals, is your next word, could provide deliverance, how much more can the blood of Jesus so if the blood of animals can provide deliverance, healing, protection, prosperity for the Israelites, how much more will the blood of Christ provide for believers today? So remember where we were. Remember where we're at. How we got here is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed upon Calvary's cross, that he obtained eternal redemption for us at the throne of God. We have a right to access all that he has done for us. Celebrating communion, your last um, asterisk there, is remembering all that Jesus did, remembering all that Jesus did to remove us from the kingdom of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of God. Thank God he uprooted us from the kingdom of darkness and transplanted us into the kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of almighty God. Praise God. So, what are we to do then? We're to remember some things. You know, it's easy. I talked about this on Sunday for us to forget. So easy to forget. That's why David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why would he tell his soul not to forget? Because it's easy to forget. When you're challenged and you're going through a difficult time, it's very easy to forget what is at our disposal and the rights that we have, the privileges that we have. And when we get browbeat by the enemy telling us that you're not good enough for this or your faith isn't strong enough for that, it's easy for us to forget. Wait a minute. It's not based on how I feel and it's not based on what you're telling me. What it's based on is the word of God. What it's based on is the sacrifice of Christ. 
Healing belongs to me, it is mine, and I thank God that I can access it through the, by the blood of Jesus Christ at the very throne of God. So I'm coming boldly to the throne, Father, and I'm asking you to deliver me, to heal me, set me free, make me whole. Number four. This is Joshua chapter 5 and verse 12. You can see how these are laid out in steps here in these two chapters because it's, it's what God used to help Joshua raise up a breed of faith people. And verse 12 says, And the manna ceased on the morrow after that he had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is called, it's a new day. Number four, it is a new day. Now, it may not mean anything to us that manna ceased. <laughs> but if you've been eating manna for 40 years, and you're used to it, it's coming down every single day, 40 years, 4,500 tons of manna, 11 million gallons of water coming out of a rock. You might get used to that. Every day to meet your needs. Supernatural needs being met. No wonder what he said to them. You've seen my glory. It was resting upon you. The cloud by day. The fire by night. The water coming out of the rock. The manna every day. You saw all that. But you won't believe my word. No wonder he was really upset with them. He had a right to be. You still doubt me after all this? They actually said you brought us out here to die. You want to kill us? No, that would have been easy. Leave them there. <laughs> they would have got killed that way. But it's a new day. No longer are they going to see manna come out of heaven. No longer are they going to see water come out of a rock. So in your notes, Gilgal was Israel's headquarters. It was the first stop along the way. It was their headquarters. It was the place they returned after battle. And it was a place of memorial. It represents a place of obedience and a place of redemption. Gilgal to us is like our Calvary, and we'll see that in a moment. So, here they are setting up camp in Gilgal. Once they had access to the produce of the land... Supernatural is your next word. This should speak volumes to us. Supernatural provisions ceased. Hmm. Would you say they were spoiled for 40 years? Mm hmm. God didn't want them to get lazy, and He also didn't want to be an enabler. Well, think about that. He didn't want them to be lazy, and he didn't want to be an enabler any longer. The time has come to grow up. The time has come to take your place. The time has come to do your part. The time has come to use your faith. And that's what he's telling them. Okay. So, point C. Calvary is our Gilgal. The first stop along the way. Do you remember the story of um, Elijah and Elisha? How first they came to Gilgal. 
then to Bethel, right? And finally made their way on through to Jericho and all the way through Jordan. And when Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, that was Gilgal. The Lord has sent me to Bethel, Gilgal, type of Calvary, first stop along the way. And then you've got a place of divine visitation. This place is where they were to meet with God. But he said, stay here. And what did Elisha say? Uh-uh. I'm not staying here. As long as you live and the Lord lives, I am not staying here. How many people have that kind of an attitude? I'm just going to stay. I'm complacent here. I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. This is Calvary. This is Gilgal. I'm just going to stay here. Uh, Bethel looks good, but you know what? I'm not sure that I want to really go that far in God. I'm going to stay right here because I know I'm going to make it in heaven. Well, you know what? God doesn't want us to be complacent and stay there. And so Elisha said, I'm not staying here. I know I'm saved and I thank God for that. But I'm going to watch you every step of the way. Because you know what, Elijah? I've watched God use you and I've seen the anointing upon your life. I don't want what you have. I want double what you have. He wanted a double portion of the anointing of God that was upon Elijah's life. So he said, I'm moving from here. I'm following you to Bethel, a place of divine visitation. And what does that mean? Where we meet with God, where we sit before the throne, where we sit before the word and we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. I'm going to get to that place. I'm going to learn some things from that place. I'm going to watch you operate in that place. But then Elijah came along and said, well, now stay here, Elisha. Now the Lord has sent me to Jericho. Jericho is the place that we're getting to of divine manifestation so we go from salvation to visitation to now manifestation when the walls came tumbling down i want god to be an active force in my life i'm not satisfied with just sitting back and getting a few goosebumps i want to see god manifest himself in glorious and powerful ways so elijah said uh-uh i'm not staying here either I'm going to follow you all the way to Jericho. I'm going to see how you operate. I want to see how God works through you. I am not staying here. I'm moving on with you. And so that's exactly what he did. And then finally the Lord said to him, or Elijah said to Elisha, but the Lord has sent me oh, now to go all the way to Jordan. You stay here. He says, no, I'm not staying here. Haven't I convinced you yet? I'm not stopping short of what God has for my life. And if you want to call me selfish, go ahead. It's good to be selfish for God. You know that? Selfish for the things of God. I want as much of God as I can possibly have is exactly what Elijah was saying. And he said, basically, I want double what you got. And so what happens is Elijah pulls out his mantle. He smacks the Jordan River. It parts. They go across. On dry ground, they get on the other side. Elijah said to him, Elijah said to Elisha, If you see me go up and depart, then you will know that what you want is granted you. And when they go on the other side, he's caught up in a whirlwind. He goes up in a chariot on his way to glory. 
and Elisha knows his desire was granted him. What does he do? He picks up the mantle of Elijah, goes back to the Jordan, does the same thing, smites it as the Bible says, and he crosses back. What is that representative of? He went all the way to the place of Jordan. Jordan is when we're completely surrendered to God. It's where we just lay it all out for God. No more of me, but I want all of you. And he took those steps to get there. And then when he got there, he picked up that mantle and the double portion came upon him. And he went right on back into the world. Now a changed individual empowered by the spirit with this wonderful anointing. And what did he do? Twice as many miracles as Elijah did. And the beauty of it, if you know the scriptures in Kings where it talks about the last miracle that he did, the last miracle that he did with the anointing was an amazing miracle because he was already dead. He was dead and just laying there. His bones were there. And when someone else had died, they threw him on top of the bones of Elisha and he came back to life. The last miracle, the double, I think there were eight for Elijah and 16 for Elisha was a dead man was raised because of the residue of the anointing in his bones. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. So in other words, he, didn't, he wasn't satisfied until he got it all. And we should have that same hunger, shouldn't we? That same desire to, to be like that. I know we have a lot of challenges in this world that get us distracted from all this. But in reality, if we want the best that God has for us, then we've got to surrender just like Elisha surrendered and do exactly what he did. All right, where are we at? That was free. <laughs> See? Calvary is our Gilgal. Our place of first coming into God's promises is your word. The cross is where the enemy is defeated. And the cross is where we have been liberated from the power of sin and death. And that incorporates sickness, disease, and everything that death stands for. And sin stands for. And Satan stands for. And darkness stands for. So, thank God, we operate from the cross where we have been liberated by the precious blood of Jesus Christ from the power of sin and death. So the new day in point D is when we enter into a new partnership of trust with God. It's a new partnership. Remember, the Bible is progressive revelation. When people want to go back and say, what about Job? And what about this one way back there and that one? Remember this, there was limited revelation in the Old Testament. The New Testament has more light than the Old Testament. Progressive revelation means you get more and more and more and more. So Jesus is the light of the world. Why do I want to walk in the dim light of the Old Testament when I can walk into the glorious light of the New Testament that reveals to us more of what Christ has done for us and what we have in him? Okay, so in John 16, 23 and 24, remember, we're talking about a new day now. Jesus said, in that day, ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say to you, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, up till now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask in my name, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. He is saying it's a new day. It's a new day. 
It's a new day. You don't have to go to the prophet to get an answer to your prayer. You don't. You can go directly to the throne of God yourself in my name and he will give it you so that your joy may be full. Why is that a new day? Because you can never do that before. They couldn't do that. They didn't have that access that we have before. You have to have representation. Well, you know what? We have representation at the right hand of God. His name is Jesus, our high priest, who is ever living to make intercession for us. He is our advocate. He's our mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And so we could boldly go to the throne of grace and ask whatever it is, the Father in his name. Now, notice how he specified this. Ask the Father in my name and he will give it to you. Sometimes I hear people pray and they end up in their prayer, but they don't use the name of Jesus. You say, well, that's getting petty. No, it's not. If Jesus said pray in my name, then whose name are you going to pray? If I'm praying, Lord, help me based on who I am. But if I say, help me in the name of Jesus, I'm saying, help me because of who he is. Not because of who I am or what I've done. So Jesus said, this is a rule of the new day. This new day is this. You have access to the throne. You've been washed in the blood. You've been uprooted from the powers of darkness, translated to the kingdom of God. You have access by faith to the full grace of God. You can walk right on in because I will represent you. I will stand before you. I will have your back. And when the enemy comes to try to condemn you in any way, I will say, I've got their back. They're washed in my blood. They're cleansed, praise God. And their sins I remember no more. They're remitted by the blood. Oh, thank, not just covered, but remitted. They don't exist anymore. Boy, aren't you glad to hear that? This is what produces a higher level of faith. To know that your sins are no longer even thought of. They're going to see a forgetfulness and they're never to be brought up ever, ever again. The only one that's going to bring him up is the devil himself. Or if you want to dwell on it yourself or I want to on myself, then we'll, we'll dwell on it and be brought up. But thank God for what Jesus did. So the day refers to after the resurrection and ascension when the new covenant is in force. So thank God it's a new day. How about this one? That's John 6, uh, 16 verses uh, 23 and 24. But also in John chapter 14... Jesus said in verse 15, I believe it is, he said, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Now, wait a minute. It seems conflicting here. Ask the Father in my name and he will do it. Ask in my name and I will do it. Well, the confusion is corrected when you understand this. The word ask can be also translated command or demand. It depends on the context. Okay. So when he's asking the Father in the name of Jesus... The word is translated ask. But when you're saying something like demand or command it to be done in my name, I will do it. He's showing a difference here. It's like in Acts chapter 3 when Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's a command, isn't it? He didn't say, I'm asking you, Father, to heal the man. There's a difference between the two. He gave a command. He demanded it. In Jesus' name, rise up and walk. And Jesus said, if you make a command in my name, I will do it. If you ask the Father something in my name, he will do it. Do you see the two differences? Absolutely. So Peter gave a command. And what happened? He was raised up. But what did he have? He had the right to use the name of Jesus to create a, have a miracle. 
So there's a difference between the two. But it's a new day. You talk about a new day? What day would you rather live in? Thank God for the new day. You realize the old day you had to have an animal sacrifice just to get yourself before, the, before God? Had to be slain and the blood had to be applied and all that sort of thing? You had to have somebody to offer up a blood sacrifice for you? Oh my goodness, can you imagine doing all that? What a bloody thing it would be. Imagine that. But thank God the blood's been shed once and for all. The blood of animals could never redeem us, deliver us, or satisfy the claims of justice. Thank God what Jesus did gives us access we can use in this new day just His name because the work's been done. Amen. Approach the throne and receive from God. In John 16, 27, it says, For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came out from God. Why is this important? Because it's a new day. God's love has been revealed to us in Christ. Sometimes the enemy will make a person think, well, God doesn't really love me. He really loves somebody else, and that's why he'll do it for them. But he really won't do it for me because, you know what, I don't really know that he loves me that much. Hold on. He loves all his children equally. Amen. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no one were, was worse than the Apostle Paul in his day. He was killing Christians, he wanted anyone that named the name of Christ to be punished, if not beheaded, because his goal was to stamp out Christianity before it ever got off the ground, because he wanted to promote Judaism. Well, someone got in his way. You know who that was? When Jesus met him on the Damascus Road with the papers in his hands and said, Hey, Paul, why are you doing this to me? Well, who are you? Jesus, the one you're persecuting? You see, you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. Why are you doing this? How does a man like that, of that caliber, make a 180 without seeing Jesus? What a 180 he made. Writes over half of the New Testament. And it doesn't matter who you are. Even someone like him. Think about it. He loves you. You, he loves me. For the Father himself loves you because you love me and you believe I came out from God. Remember Peter, who denied Jesus three times? And remember after, of course he was concerned for his life, but remember afterwards in John's gospel at the end when he said, Peter, do you love me? Remember that? Some believe that was the first time he confronted Peter face to face after he made that denial. Not that maybe he didn't see, he, he may have seen Jesus before that in the crowd with the others, but there was a face-to-face -face confrontation when Jesus walked up to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. He used the word agape. Do you agape me? And Peter said, yes, I phileo you. Brotherly love. Okay. But if you really love me, if you really love me, then do something. He gave him a chance to eradicate the three denials. Three times he said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What did he say to do? Do something. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Show your love for me. Display it. See, Peter was more concerned about his own physical well-being and he exalted himself and his physical life on earth above his love for Christ. And what Jesus was trying to say to him, look, it's time to sacrifice your life for me now. I sacrifice mine for you. It's time for you to lay down your life 
for me. Isn't this something that everybody knows John 3.16? Anybody here that doesn't know John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Right? He gave his only begotten son. But what about 1 John 3.16? 1 John 3.16. It says that he laid down his life for us. So we owe it to him to lay down our lives for the brethren. Something that is right there, 1 John 3.16. He did it in John 3.16. Now we're to do it in 1 John 3.16. We're to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, he loves us all equally. Love is the force behind redemption. You can put that in there. Love is the force behind redemption. Love motivated God to act on our part and redeem us through the blood of Christ. Love is the motivating force behind it. Everything we have in Christ is a manifestation of God's love for us. And until we recognize that, our faith level will be low. When you know someone loves you that much, you can believe they'll do anything for you. Okay, F. We now have the right to use the name of Jesus to access heaven and stand against every enemy. It's a new day. You couldn't do this before. You know, before man did not have authority over the devil. You realize that. Under that old covenant, the average man had no authority over the devil whatsoever. The devil wasn't defeated yet. But now we have. Instead of sitting back and expecting God to do it for us, remember the days uh, of manna, we take responsibility for our own lives and cooperate with God by using our faith to receive what he has provided for us. That's all he wanted the Israelites to do under Moses, just believe. Use your faith. You've seen my miracles. You've seen my glory. You saw the manifested presence of God on a continuous basis from the time you came out of Egypt. And even before you came out of Egypt, all the ten, ten plagues that took place. But now you won't believe my word? Hmm. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And we won't read through all this, but it says, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so that all have sinned. Right? We know that. So, God is thoroughly good and loves us unconditionally. It's a new day. All suffering is in existence because of the existence of evil, not God. People want to blame God. Evil exists because Lucifer acted separate from God's will for his existence. He stepped out of those boundaries that God established for his being, a being that God created. And as a result, he gave birth to all that is evil. Notice this next point. All suffering results from three things. First, from the kingdom of darkness imposing its will upon mankind. You realize the devil has no good will for any person's life. Second, from the natural consequences of a fallen world. Someone says, why is that in the world? Well, because of the fall of man. There wouldn't have been here. And if it wasn't for the fall of man, we wouldn't have no sin, sickness, disease, or COVID-19. Finally, from, and this one, mm, open doors. Allowed by sinful choices. Open doors. Allowed by sinful choices. And we know that that happens and can happen. 
So once we understand where sickness comes from, we can understand why and how we are able to overcome it. Adam opened the door to sin and death, but Christ overcame sin and death. Adam's disobedience is your next word, brought evil. But Jesus' obedience brings good. Look at the comparison. The first Adam, disobedience. The second Adam, obedience. We must enforce the accomplishments of Jesus in our lives and reign over the kingdom of darkness by the power of Jesus' name. And this requires faith. It takes faith. What's the victory that overcomes the world? Even our faith. How important is faith? Okay, so in 1 Timothy 6.12 then, in our closing paragraph here, or two, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed or confessed a good profession or confession before many witnesses. What? Fight? I thought Jesus did it all. He did. He, he did. Well, don't we have laws in our land that prevent people from robbing stores and committing murder? Mm-hmm. But don't we have law enforcement to see to it that the laws are enforced? And there'll be people that will stand against those uh, law enforcement individuals? Right. It's just because the law says it's yours. Freedom is yours. Protection is yours. You have a right to have a peaceable life. Doesn't mean you don't have an enemy out there that's not going to try to take that away from us. Right? So the devil's been defeated, but guess what? He's crazy. Out of his mind. You listen to him, you'll go crazy too. I'm telling you. Fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. So in order to succeed, we must possess the spirit of a fighter. That's right. A warrior, Aaron. You're right. Put on a Rocky movie. Let the song play. Let it stir in your soul. When you start to get down, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm -mm. You see, it works wonders. You know, you're down and, and depressed and whatever, and all of a sudden... His wife comes along and says, hey, honey, I'm on your side. And all of a sudden, his old countenance changes. Well, thank God for his wife. But what about who's on our side? Greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. We can do all things through Christ who is our strength. If God be for us, who could be against us? Praise God Almighty. God wants us to rise up with the spirit of a fighter. And fight means contend against. To, to contend against. To stand against something. To strive to overcome. To gain by struggle, to prevent the success or, and your next word is effectiveness of the enemy. So we must be willing to stand against the opposition and take what belongs to us by force. You think the devil's just going to let go of it? Not going to let go of it. I guarantee you this, once you get it, he's going to come with a counterattack to try to get it back. What did Jesus say happens when the devil's gone out of a man? He'll go into dry places, seeking rest, finding none. And what does he say? I'll go back to my house. Your house? Are you kidding me? This is a, your address. It's not your house. But he calls it my house. From whence I was kicked out. And he'll try to get back in. 
and make the condition of the individuals even worse than what it was before. So you know there's going to be a counterattack. That's why we got to understand the fight. So take it by force. Now the last word, blind Bartimaeus, perfect example, refused to be denied or silenced by any dreamer destiny thief. He took hold of the healing power of God and reigned victorious over blindness. So, the last two statements are, we've got a covenant with God, we know that, we, the enemy is defeated, we've got a covenant with God. Remember where we came from and how we got out was not by our own strength, power, and ability, but by God, which means if God didn't want us out, he wouldn't have brought us out, right? But he did, and it is a new day. Don't live with that old mentality. The slavery mentality, they couldn't get out of their brains, which is why they did not enter the promised land. But when they had a revelation of the new day, under Joshua's leadership, they got into the promised land, and that was an act of faith. And so unbelief kept them out, faith got them in. What camp do we want to be a part of? The rest of you? What camp do we want to be a part of? The faith camp. Oh, you're one of those faith people. Yes. I should get a badge that says, I'm one of those faith people. Yes. Live with it. I believe God. Amen. I believe God that it shall be even as it was said to me, the Apostle Paul said. But Paul, you're on a ship that's going down. It doesn't matter. You've got to get off. You've got to get on the little, uh, little boats out here and get out. Away from, because this is going down. No, 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 no. I believe that God said not one hair on your head would be harmed in any way. If you stay on the boat and believe God. And sirs, I believe God that it shall be as it was spoken to me. That is faith. Can you say amen? amen. I don't know about you, I'm preaching myself happy. Let's all stand up. <laughs>